Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It's April 22, 2022, so lots of twos. Uh, news is, as always, even if it's a Friday, I'm looking forward to the weekend. News isn't great. Um, yesterday, we did a show with Mickey Huff, a journalist, journalism activist and teacher. We asked, can we trust anything we read in the media these days? And Mickey doesn't seem to think we can trust much. He's the co-author of a new book, The Media and Me, A Guide to Critical Media Literacy for Young People. He's also involved with the Project Censored State of the Free Press in 2020, and he believes that a lot of the news we read is censored or biased. My guest today might not be quite in the same political camp as Mickey, but I think his conclusion is similarly pessimistic. Uh, Joel Simon is the co-author of The Infodemic, How Censorship and Lies Made the World Sicker and Less Free. It's very much a sort of post-COVID journalism book. And um, uh, and uh, Joel is joining us today. Uh, Joel, where are you? Um, are you uh, at Columbia University? I know you're now a uh, a fellow at the Tau Center for Digital Journalism. That's that's my my home address is in Brooklyn, uh, and that's where I am now. But I have one uh, one. I have a little bit. I grew up in Brooklyn, so I have that little bit of. Is it true, Joel, that everyone in Brooklyn is a journalist? Well, some some people in Brooklyn are writers, so and are documentary filmmakers. Right. So not all of us are journalists. Yeah. Is it still the only place in the world that the information is free and accurate? Um, I wouldn't say that. We have our share of lies in Brooklyn. Yeah, well, you have the People's Republic of Brooklyn and the People's Republic of Berkeley. I used to live there. Now I'm in the People's Republic of San Francisco. But in all seriousness, your new book, mm -hmm. The Infodemic, How Censorship and Lies Made the World Sicker and Less Free, these books always seem to be so pessimistic, Joel. I mean, how much worse can things get when it comes to biased news, propaganda, and corruption in the in the information space? Well, I'd, I'd rather not think about how much worse it can get. I mean, let's think about where we are now and right. how to make it how to make it better because that's just too 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 grim. Um, but I mean, I think I think what we're you know what the, what we're trying to do in this book is really talk about the not not even so much the like the information systems themselves but the way in which political leaders around the world exploited these dysfunctional systems some of which they you know helped to create through their own uh undertakings to uh undermine uh information essential to public health and to mount an assault on rights under cover of COVID that actually, you know, we, we live in a very different world today as a result. So many countries around the world suppressed essential information about the disease in order to cover up their own incompetence and suppressed essential rights that are necessary for people around the world to participate in government and, 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 and hold leaders accountable. Um, and we didn't really pay much attention to this for very understandable reasons, which was that we were living through a pandemic. 
And uh, so that's really what this book is about. It's really about the shift in the kind of global balance of power that took place uh, un under, you know, while the pandemic was happening and what the implications of that are for our future. Yeah, we've done some shows on it. We did a show with William uh, J. Bernstein, who made some conceptual links between uh, COVID and the conspiracy virus. Is there a virus of information? Is this part of the problem, John? I think that what I saw is the way in which political leaders exploited the pandemic was, you know, there were, there, were, there were two essential ways in which they did it. One was, you know, in authoritarian countries around the world, starting with China, they used more conventional means of political censorship, you know, arresting uh, people who engaged in, uh, who, who, who uh, uh, reported information that the government wanted to keep secret or challenge the government or, uh, you know, something like that. And then there was another form of censorship that we saw in many uh, democratic countries around the world, including in this one, which is sometimes called censorship through noise or flooding. Uh, and that's uh, when political leaders just uh, fill the space, the information space with misleading information or information designed to confuse and manipulate and undermine public understanding. It really has the same function, which is to ensure that the government narrative is the dominant narrative and that those who are you know, seeking to build a consensus around how to respond to a public health crisis of, of, of of unprecedented magnitude are unable to to, to do that. Um, and so, yes, I mean, I think that's what the infodemic is. It was it was the one tool that governments had to fight this disease initially was to use information and build trust. And they completely missed that opportunity, undermined uh, public trust, undermined the ability to build uh, consensus. And that was one of the reasons that the pandemic was so awful and that so many people died. Well, you've thrown out a lot of stuff. They've talked about China. You've talked about the United States. You've talked about COVID. Let's begin with the U.S. I mean, we've done a lot of shows, or we did a lot of shows about COVID in America. Lots of distinguished medical experts like Eric Topol. We talked to tech people like Kenneth Kukia from The Economist about America's failure to use big data to deal with COVID. We talked about with entrepreneurs like Ben Boyer, post-vaccine world in terms of COVID. Of course, we talked a lot about Trump, lots of shows on Trump. We did one with Jonathan Carl, very distinguished television correspondent, wrote a book, Front Row at the Trump Show. I, I mean, Trump was, of course, incredibly biased and self-serving in his approach to COVID, but did he win? Didn't he get voted out because he failed mostly on COVID to convince a public that was deeply skeptical about his um, efforts, which were mostly ca catastrophic to deal with COVID? Well, I think there were a whole range of, you know, uh, of reasons that uh, Trump lost the election. Uh, but that was, that was certainly one of them. I think, I think it was a uh, a kind of referendum on his um, uh, COVID response. But I mean, one thing to think about is, and, and, and this was sort of difficult to see in the moment, but what, what did he see as his path 
to electoral victory. He basically thought, number one, uh, I'm not going, I'm going to deny that COVID is an actual health threat, and I'm going to delegate to the states and, and, and cities and municipal governments responsibility for responding to COVID so that I can basically, you know, if they're successful, I can credit, I can take the credit. And if they're, if they're not successful, I can criticize them. And I can be the champion of keeping the economy open and defending people's quote unquote freedom. And then I'm going to pour huge amounts of resources into the vaccine because the vaccine is my golden ticket. If I can get that vaccine in people's arms before uh, the election, right, and the sense is that the pandemic was is over, and you know we got through this and we didn't pay a terrible economic cost, you know, then uh, he would have won, and that was his that was his vision. It wasn't. I'm not, sure, I'm not sure he was wrong, right? Yeah, I mean, I'm it was sure. uh, it was a political gamble which he lost, he but he but he came pretty close, right? Well, uh, and to be fair to look, I'm no great, it goes without saying, I'm sure you're not, when nobody's great fans of Trump, but he did fast track the vaccine. I mean, he has right. to, take, we have to give him some credit for that. Well, I mean, I think, I think it was, a, I mean, you know, I think it was obviously a political strategy from, in his own mind, but it was a pretty, a pretty savvy one. But, you know, one of the things I talked about uh, in, in this book is that there was this meeting. I don't know, I don't know if you remember that took place on, on March 7th in uh, Mar-a-Lago, where President Jair Bolsonaro from Brazil yeah, I remember. Uh, yeah. came. Right. And they had this, um, this dinner, you know, at, at uh, Mar-a-Lago. And I was taught, you know, part of what, there's a chapter in the book where I talked to the, to the um, health minister of uh, Brazil. Uh, who played a, a kind of a Fauci-like role. He kind of ran this, um, you know, this kind of information insurgency from within the Brazilian government to try and inform the public because if Trump was a COVID denier uh, and was reckless in his behavior and his kind of uh, ways in which he undermined people trying to take, you know, responsible action to manage this disease, Bolsonaro was 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 even was even worse and even even more reckless, and what uh, Luis Enrique Mendetta, who's the name of the health minister of Brazil, who was who was in place when the pandemic uh, began, what he told me is he thought that uh, Trump and uh, Bolsonaro sort of agreed at you know used that um, meeting to kind of coalesce around the strategy, which was to deny the threat of the disease, claim some miracle cure, hydroxychloroquine, delegate authority to the state so that you know that he could be the champion of you know keeping the country open, um, and and that took a tremendous toll on uh, Brazilian uh, democracy, which is fighting for its life today. And the thing that Bolsonaro didn't have was, you know, like the, the, the cavalry in the form of a vaccine, because uh, he also, you know, kind of undermined the vac. The, Brazil has a history of, of, of effective vaccination campaigns, but Bolsonaro really undermined that. And so I think I think like Brazil is an interesting counterexample of what the U.S. might have looked like without a stronger institutions and a kind of more robust and 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 uh, independent uh, electoral process. I uh, didn't some Americans come out of what you call the infodemic looking pretty good. Tony Fauci in particular, doctors who were 
relatively principled, stood up to Trump, stood up to everyone as much as they could in terms of trying to tell the truth. I mean, my sense is that the the circus, the, the media circus around Trump and COVID um, was, was effectively countered by people like Fauci, or am I wrong? Uh, you know, I'm not, I'm, I think, first of all, Fauci played, you know, a, a, you know a, a, a heroic role in, again, sort of waging an information insurgency from within the White House, right? But that's, 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 should not be necessary. Uh, and, uh, and, and, you know, the other thing to keep in mind is, you know, part of the function of the infodemic is that, you know, we are in these kind of communities that manage, that, that relate to information in completely different ways. So, you know, there's, there's, there's a kind of one community that saw Fauci in a kind of, um, heroic way of you know challenging the president and doing it in a way that like allowed him to to maintain his platform uh which was like walking a tightrope but obviously many people um around the country trump supporters you know viewed fauci as the the ultimate villain and you know the thing about um public health emergencies is you want to be able to build a consensus yes Fauci, you know, was able to reach a significant segment of the of the public, but it was impossible because of the polarizing politics of the United States for there to be any consensus about the most effective and appropriate COVID, response. Uh, uh, Joel, I mean, that's the reality of our social media age. We've done so many shows on how social media is undermining our democracy, with or without COVID. You would you, you have these dual communities that have completely different conceptions of the public space, of trust, of politics. Correct, correct. Yeah, I mean, the, the, I'm not claiming that uh, COVID caused this. I'm claiming that the fact that this polarization existed and our media was so fragmented made the, uh, the, the, the you know, the, 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 the situation so much worse. And the book is a global book. I mean, we're talking a lot about the United States. Yeah, no, I want to talk after the break. Yeah. About the rest of the world, but obviously Trump is is oh, when when it comes to COVID, it's interesting to talk about Trump in terms of the pandemic, um, which seems to have I wouldn't say gone away, but dramatically lessened. Is yeah. the consequence of the censorship and lies you talk about in terms of the U.S. and COVID has that gone away too, or is that still lingering? Oh, I think I think it's more than I think it's more than lingering. I think that, you know, our information system is, you know, stressed tremendously by, you know, a kind of external shock uh, um, like like COVID. And so all the dysfunction remains. And, you know, the, the, we, we actually ironically um, you know, and, and the polarizing politics in the domestic, in the domestic sense um, are exactly the same, and I think I think will 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 play out um, for a long time to come. You know, in a global context, we have this kind of unifying event, which is the uh, 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 Russian invasion of Ukraine. So you know, that's 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 a completely different context in which there is some common ground, and uh, and so there is much more of a consensus uh, about the response. But you know, it is. The, the information infrastructure, if you will, 
is exactly the same. I don't see any evidence that it's improved. It's just that the you know the crisis has abated. Well, we're talking with Joel Simon, the co-author of a new Columbia uh, Global Report, The Infodemic, uh, How Censorship and Lies Made the World Sicker and Less Free. Joel, we're going to take a quick break now. And afterwards, I want to talk about, I don't want to talk just about um, the United States. I want to talk about the rest of the world, which your, your new book focuses on, particularly China. So we'll take a 60-second break, and then we'll be back with Joel Simon, the author of The Infodemic. Hi everyone, Andrew here again. I'm not sure if you're listening or watching or even reading about this Keenon show. I certainly hope you're enjoying it, but I wanted to remind you that there are many different ways you can use to enjoy my Keenon show. The first, of course, is by, in a very traditional way, subscribing to the audio-only podcast. You can do this um, using Apple or Spotify or CastBox or many of the other traditional uh, podcast distribution platforms. We're on all of them. And if you want to access uh, all the podcasts together, you can go to my LitHub page um, in their podcast section, which is dedicated to all the interviews. Uh, if you're into watching this, as opposed to simply listening, um, if you follow me on Twitter at AJ Keen, you can watch these shows live uh, and you can do the same um, if we're connected uh, on LinkedIn. I'm not on Facebook. I'm not a great fan of Facebook, but LitHub is. And on their LitHub live page, you can watch these shows live as well. Um, in terms of uh, recorded videos, uh, not live, you can see all the shows on the LitHub YouTube page. So whatever your preference, whatever your taste, whether it's video or audio or text, there's no excuse for not watching or listening to my show. Now back to Keynote. We are back with Joel Simon, the co-author of a new book, The Infodemic, which is about the troubling relationship between COVID and our crisis of truth and uh, plague of lies in uh, in our media. Uh, Joel, in the first half of the book, we took uh, first half of the show, we talked about the U.S. I want to talk about China now. You have a whole chapter in the book on China, and the book is yeah. mostly focused out of the U.S. Uh, you're now at the Tao Center for Digital Journalism at Columbia Journalism School. Um, what's going on in China in terms of, of COVID? How troubling is the impact of COVID on truth and lies in China? Well, let's go through the trajectory of the, of the, of the disease and the way it played out. Of course, COVID uh, originated in China, in Wuhan. There's you know evidence emerging that there was... Uh, indications that the that there were that the disease was circulating in the late fall, maybe September, October, November. These are these are new reports, but certainly sometime before uh, uh, it, you know the, the general public became aware, Chinese uh, scientists and officials were aware that something was happening, and and 
all the evidence was that their initial response was to suppress and, and cover up that information. And that had terrible consequences because it allowed the pandemic to seed uh, and, and the public was initially com complacent. I profile uh, a, a citizen journalist, a Chinese uh, blogger named Chen Kishi. He you know, was a, is a, is a young guy who's, who's pretty well known. He was a lawyer and he made, he had, he made it a hobby to go to places where news was not and try and break through the Chinese censorship. And he he traveled to Hong Kong and he did all these reports there. And then when the, you know, when the, when Wuhan, uh, you know, the, the disease emerged in Wuhan, he went and tried to chronicle what was happening there using YouTube videos uploaded to Twitter. And I showed like that he was able to to demonstrate and share with the world the kind of misery and suffering and just how rapidly this disease was exploding and how uh, ineffectual the, the, the response was, at least initially. And then he was, you know, rounded up and basically put in prison. And then the Chinese government clamped down on all information and, and, and impose, you know, they actually, you know, of course they used draconian measures to, um, you know, basically confine everyone to their home and they did contain the disease through this dramatic, these dramatic measures. And then because they were able to do that, they went out with this narrative, which is that authoritarian governments and the full power of the state and the ability to suppress information, that's what you need to bring the pandemic under control. And of course, that argument resonated with authoritarian governments around the world who were seeing the way democracies responded in Europe and the United States and the other dysfunction. And so that sort of narrative, which, which originated in China, really strengthened um, you know, the, the kind of authoritarian uh, response uh, to the disease. And of course, China was able to contain the disease for uh, an extended period through their zero COVID policy. They also used it as an opportunity to expand state power and surveillance throughout the country, which was already which massive. Is, I mean, we've already done greater. a shows on that. Sorry? High strip matter before COVID on life in China's surveillance state was already pretty. Unpleasant. Oh, it was, it was, I mean, it how was, much worse has it got? Oh, it's, it's gotten dramatically worse. I mean, everyone in China has to download an app, which uh, has, you know, monitors their movements and uh, it, 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 you have to, you know, have a green uh, code in order to access any public facility. So they're monitoring the movements of the capacity to monitor the movements of the entire uh, population. And they have, you know, expanded facial recognition. Um, so basically you are, you, the, the, the Chinese state has the ability to monitor all its citizens, both in the online world and in the real world. Many other governments are envious of this capability and they're deploying, you know, similar technology. So uh, the, uh, you know, the, 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 the pandemic has been a boon uh, for state surveillance, both in authoritarian countries and even in uh, more democratic ones. We look at Singapore, we look at, you know, Israel, which, which uh, uh, deployed, uh, uh, a kind of a health monitoring app. We look at uh, Russia, for example, is using these kinds of new strength and its surveillance capabilities. Uh, so this is this is a global phenomenon that has well, come out of the pandemic. We have any more? I mean, the reality of the pandemic, for better or worse, Joel, is that dealing with it requires 
governments or some authority to monitor um, their citizens in terms of who has it and who doesn't. Is there a model for doing it correctly in a, in a yes. democratic sense? So, yeah, I'm, I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm not an epidemiologist, so I, I can't say this is the exact uh, formula that works. But I think this is kind of the heart of the book, is the notion that in order to collectively fight this disease, we have to, even in a democratic society, much less an authoritarian one, cede certain uh, authorities to uh, governments that they to control our freedom in ways that they wouldn't we wouldn't you know allow them to do under normal circumstances and how do we think about what are the legitimate um, kind of you know authorities that governments can um, claim to protect public health in an emergency and basically my argument is that the, the most important thing you want to preserve when governments uh, need to claim extraordinary powers is basically the ability to take those powers back from them. And that's what I call positive liberty, the ability to that, that citizens have to participate in the democratic process and, and pr protect their rights and allow them to, to challenge government authority. So we're seeing, you know, in, in, in some, uh, you know, more uh, democratic states that, you know, the actions of governments are being challenged and the notion that they overstepped their authority, you know, there is some debate around that. But in authoritarian countries around the world, there's, there's none of that. And that has terrible, terrible consequences. And I would point to Russia as a leading example. I mean, Putin... You know, while he was personally terrified of the disease, Russia enormously expanded the authority of the state. It was already quite limited. But, for example, they prohibited public protests during the entire period of the pandemic. And that those in order to protect public health, supposedly, those rights have not been uh, restored. They actually uh, sort of arrested and and uh, um, uh you know, incarcerated effectively or, or confined to their homes, uh, political dissidents. They expanded state surveillance. Uh, so in other words, Russia, right before Putin went into Ukraine, used that period, you know, the, you know, the year and a half long period to expand his own authority. And I, and I don't think it's a wild coincidence that, you know, Putin decided to take this action immediately, you know, as, you know, in the kind of, you know, as the first uh, dramatic action of the post-COVID era. I mentioned earlier, um, Joel, that um, we had a conversation with Ken Cook here from The Economist, a major thinker on the future of data, big data on America's failure to use big data to deal with COVID-19. Um, what about pioneering countries in the use of digital technology. Two come to mind, Estonia and South Korea. Well, three actually, and, um, and Taiwan, perhaps Taiwan more than, than South Korea. Um, in creating a degree of transparency between citizen and state in terms of who knows what, are there models there? Did you look at Estonia or, or Taiwan and their approach to data and transparency and who knows what? Well, I didn't look at Estonia. I did. We did look at Taiwan a little bit, and 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 South Korea. 
Um, and, and I think that, you know, Thai, Thai, both of those, those are two countries that had uh, significant uh, success in uh, containing uh, the disease. And they're two countries that are uh, democratic and, 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 you know, definitely uh, certain rights were um, uh, uh, with, uh, limited during the pandemic period. But, but I think the kind of underlying threat to democratic structures was much less dramatic. And data was certainly part of their response, but it was a lot of common, you know, in both instances, it was a lot of common sense, consensus building approaches involving, you know, mask wearing, for example, uh, which was, you know, a much easier argument to make in an, in an Asian context where there's, you know, already a culture of, of mask wearing and, you know, in, Ta in the case of Taiwan, limiting uh, travel in the way that a number of other countries did. So, you know, technology played a role, but it always has to be you know, integrated with, with, with other strategies. And again, the question is, can you build enough of a consensus within the society that allows governments to take these kinds of actions uh, without compromising fundamental rights. And what about the use of new technologies, like in particular blockchain, um, which is supposedly uncorruptible public databases? We had Don Tapscott on the show a couple of years ago. He's one of the big evangelists of blockchain mm -hmm. technology. He sees this as the new internet. Could these um, uncorruptible public databases, could they be the fix so that everyone knows uh, what can and can't be seen and no one can tamper with the data? Well, I mean, I'm, not, I'm certainly not an expert on, on blockchain technology, but I, th I think the challenge that, I mean, certainly technology and the ability to use technology to manage the disease is an incredible asset and and, and the, but the question is can this be done in a way that protects individual privacy and does not expand uh the power of the state to surveil our every move and under cover of fighting the disease so you know for example we looked in the book we do have a, we do have a chapter in surveillance and some uh governments used um uh, Bluetooth technology, which basically allowed, you know, somebody who might have been, had exposure and then came in proximity to another person who had, you know, the, an app on their phone that allowed their phones to communicate to basically, you know, uh, accelerate surveillance and allow, I mean, I'm talking about surveillance in the medical sense, you know, the ability to, to, to see who might have been exposed. And, it, and it's much less of a threat to personal privacy. But we also looked at, you know, countries like Singapore, which claimed to use uh, um, Bluetooth technology, but actually because of the way that these apps worked, was using GPS technology, which meant that the government's basically, nobody knows how they use them and how long this information is retained, but theoretically had access to tremendous amounts of data about the individual behavior of citizens. So the, so the question, and I don't have an answer to this, but it's a really interesting question. Could blockchain be used to allow governments to carry out uh, monitoring, public health monitoring in ways that protected public health and both protected privacy and guaranteed rights? Of course, that's what we're 
the objective we're hoping for. And uh, maybe you could have some uh, more informed technologists on who can answer that question. Yeah, I maybe, have you can, uh, maybe for your next book, uh, this book, The uh, Infodemic, How Censorship and Lies Made the World Sicker and Less Free. Maybe we could have a book in the future, How Technology Can Make the World Less Sick and Freer. Or maybe that's for Emily I, Bell at your center to write. Yeah, sign me up. Well, anyway, congratulations on the book, Joel. A very interesting take and a very, very important subject. And I think um, it's not something, unfortunately, that's going away. COVID is um, might be m more dormant than it was a year ago, but it's not going to disappear. So these issues are not going away. What else are you reading these days, um, Joel? Uh, you're at Columbia Journalism School in the Center for Digital Journalism. I'm sure you... Your reading list is particularly interesting. Do you have anything to share? I don't think I'm going to point to one. Uh, I, I, did, I did read a very interesting book uh, by, uh, on uh, free speech. And, uh, and that's kind of, I, and now I'm drawing a blank on the author's name, but he's a, he's a, a, a wonderful guy and I interviewed him recently. And, uh, and that's part of my reading list is, is basically because what I'm researching at the Tau Center is, you know, if this is a kind of pessimistic and, and, and grim take, I, 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 can't, I can't deny it. I'm trying to think of what, a, what the kind of information space 10 years from now uh, might look like that would be healthier and more constructive and how we, how we get there. So I don't want to get ahead of myself because it's a complicated question, but I will say that all my reading is directed around that question. And your friend uh, Emily Bell has been a remarkable uh, 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 support in uh, identifying some of the key issues and, uh, and, and thinking in this, in this arena. Yeah, Emily Bell is excellent, but she's deeply flawed because she's an Arsenal fan. But apart from that, she's a good Oh, well, I, I, I had no idea. I just learned something about her. But yeah, I mean, terrible. Yeah. terrible, terrible. Yeah. Anyway, yeah. Uh, Joel Simon, congratulations on the book, uh, the, Info, the Infodemic, uh, interesting new take on COVID and, and, and press freedom. Finally, uh, uh, Joel, who runs the world on uh, April 22, 2022? Who's in charge these days? Who runs the world? I think we have a cabal. I don't. I don't. I don't. I don't think we have one. Uh, one individual uh, running the world. Uh, but if you, if you, if you know differently, uh, please, uh, please enlighten me.